0: Well, good morning, church family. Shout out to you all. Thank you for your encouragement and support during this summertime series entitled Issues and Inspiration. I'm going to ask your indulgence one more time for this last message in our series. As today, I tackle a tough topic, namely the church and abuse. I could call this message behind closed doors, because that's where these atrocities often occur. I know my crowd. I know many of you personally i have heard your stories. I know your deep pain. I know something of the agony through which you're going through, because abuse leaves lifelong scars. Obviously, this is one of the most delicate subjects we will have chosen to address, but address it. We must, I'm gonna ask you even in this moment to please pray for me under your breath. Lord help Kurt. I need courage to preach boldly and truthfully. I need grace to preach compassionately. I am asking the spirit to bring conviction and the spirit to bring comfort. Only the gospel can heal the abused and restore the abuser, so let me set the stage. I was a 23 year old, first time pastor, Washington State, the greater Seattle area, in fact I pastored that church for nearly 27 years. But I had just come to that church, I was there only two weeks as a 23 year old, when I got a phone call long distance from out of state, is this the pastor, yes, You need to know, pastor, that your chairman of your your deacons has been molesting his daughters. Do something about it. After picking myself up off the floor, I did do something about it. Although in retrospect, I could have, should have done more. I would ask you to cut me a break. I was just youthful in my naya tve, not really knowing the score and all of this, never had been taught about it in my theological training. Honestly, I just didn't know fully what I should do, but I did my best at the time. I want to learn from my mistakes, and I want to help the 21st century church work through this issue biblically. The hashtag MeToo movement has now expanded to the hashtag church 2 movement. When abuse is reported to us in the church context, to those of us who are leaders, we must not cover it up. We must expose it. We must bring it to justice. We must care for those who've been hurt. A word to the many who are here in this service who have been abused. I, I beg of you, if you are suffering in silence, please talk to us. I know there's been a long time stigma. No, you don't talk about this. No, no, not not, not among those you respect. They, they might think ill of me. But to hold it inside of yourself is to poison yourself. And it is to poison your relationships with those around you. When you've been abused, there's a tendency to blame yourself. You're not at fault. But you build walls, and you keep people at a distance for fear that somehow you will contaminate them or they will contaminate you. So I beg of you, tell us, I promise you, if you come to me as the counseling pastor, I will not condemn you. We will help you. If you out yourself with what you're going through, then we can help you recover through biblical counsel. But you must share with us. And please remember, secrecy is to sickness what openness is to health. The pedophilia scandal within the Catholic Church has been widely panned, but new revelations of abuse within the evangelical community are now coming to light. It seems almost every denominational group has at least some skeletons in their closet. Even the largest evangelical slash Protestant denomination in America, the Southern Baptist Convention, has recently had to own up to the problems within their own ranks. Of course, there's all kinds of abuse extant present in society. There's sexual abuse. There is physical abuse, verbal abuse, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse even among leaders in some churches. These abuses occur in the context of the home, the school, the workplace, the gym, the church, and I could go on and on. It's no respecter of persons, whatever the socioeconomic status of the abusers, even high profile people, we've all been watching the news. The late Jeffrey Epstein, a billionaire abusing underage girls for a long time, reportedly has taken his own life. A few years ago, there was Dr. Larry Nasser, who was the longtime physician for the Michigan State University' Spartans gymnastic teams. He's now been found out to have abused upwards to 500 young ladies. This is a very expansive topic and I can't cover it all, so I'm gonna have to really restrict myself. Today, primarily, I wanna talk to you about domestic abuse. we will take a a moment to share the statistical frequency of sexual abuse, but primarily, as you see on the screen, uh, I'm going to put the microscope on this objective in revealing domestic abuse, namely, identifying the oppressor in marital relationships. So here we go, here are some statistics, here is what the dumpster fire looks like. A woman is battered in America every nine seconds. Abuse is the leading cause of injuries to women ages 15 to 44. 95% of victims of domestic violence are women one in three women experience a physical assault during her adulthood by a partner. And as you can see, research indicates that by the age of 18, one out of every three women will also be victims of sexually abusive conduct. And just so you understand, the numbers are similar for men who've been abused. We live in a very traumatized society. People come into a room like this dragging their pain in silence. Someone needs to talk about it. So let me take you to a biblical illustration that points to the characteristics of the oppressor as found in the person of King Saul. If you have a Bible, please join me in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses six through 12. If you didn't bring a copy of the scriptures with you, the words will appear on the screen. The backstory story here, King Saul is leading Israel. David's just a young man who has just had an amazing victory over the giant from Gath, whose name is Goliath, this nine-foot-plus guy that he takes out with a, a well-placed stone from his slingshot. And he is coming back to be celebrated, David is, not knowing that he would be competition for King Saul. We pick it up in verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of the cities of Israel. This was very customary when the people came back from war. They were trying to honor the king, and they were singing, and they were dancing, and they would whirl around, mostly the women did the dancing, whirling around to celebrate using a tambourine. They were singing with songs of joy, tambourines with musical instruments. These gals could have joined Pastor Paul's praise team. And the women sang to one another antiphonally. They celebrated. This was their song, using some hyperbole, obviously. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. That wasn't lost on Saul. Verse 8, he was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've ascribed only thousands. And what more can you have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The very next day, a harmful spirit from, probably better translated, allowed by God, rushed upon Saul, the king of Israel, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as He did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, I'll kill him. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Darby Strickland gives five characteristics of oppressors, abusers, and I'm gonna primarily apply this to marriage. Here they are, number one. Oppressive people feel entitled. They believe their spouses exist to keep them happy. They have an inflated sense of self and feel that they are owed preferential treatment. That was Saul. He had a messianic complex. He wanted everybody to know that he was number one. He had a big ego. He demanded primary attention be given to him, and when it was not, he became exceedingly jealous the text says in verse nine, "He eyed David every day from that moment on." Incidentally, this sin, the sin of entitlement, is what has brought down such evangelical luminaries as Mark Driscoll, C.J. Mahaney, Bill Hybels, and more recently, James MacDonald. These falls are the result of excesses stemming from the megachurch megalomania. What am I saying? I'm saying, dear friends, we must not worship given preachers no matter what their exalted status. We must not worship musicians. We must not pick out our favorite praise brand or favorite pastor. We must worship the Lord People will let you down. Even, quote, godly men will sometimes fall. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus, not men. And no matter how exalted they are, those in positions of authority who abuse must be brought to account because no one is above the law, certainly the law of God. A second characteristic of abusers, oppressive people dominate others through manipulation, unrelenting pressure. Oppressive people demand their spouses meet their needs by living according to a specific set of rules, rules that are defined by them. And when a person gives himself to that, he's overcome by the enemy. Saul was overtaken by a harmful spirit. This this demonic spirit was a spirit of domination. And Jesus said in John chapter 10, in contrasting with himself, Jesus being the good shepherd, he talks about the enemy, about the devil, and he says, Satan, the devil, is not come but to steal and to kill and to destroy. And he will destroy people through this, this element of domination. Number three, oppressive people use threats. Oppressors maintain control by creating a climate of fear. They use threats to manipulate spouses by reminding them of the retribution they face if they fail to comply. In Saul's case, the retribution became verbal. The text says that he raved about the house. Even while David calmly played upon his harp, too many men, even to this day, rule their house like a tyrant gone mad. Fourth characteristic of an abuser, number four, oppressive people punish others to maintain control. These punishments may start with verbal threats, such as name calling, controlling, blaming, humiliating, ignoring, isolating, hovering, just to name a few, and they likely include the arenas of the sexual, the emotional, and even the spiritual. But too often, their punishing mechanism turns physical. In Saul's case, he threw a spear at David, intending to kill him. Violence has murder in its heart. In our society, the spear is a gun, or a knife, or a hand that slaps or chokes or a fist that pounds. And even though I'm speaking primarily to spousal abuse, I'm not unaware that child abuse abounds in these same kinds of homes. In Matthew 18, Jesus warns that we must protect the little ones. We go to great lengths here at Saterville Church to protect the little ones. Thank God he's protected our church over the years. We need to pray that that will continue. But Jesus said in Matthew 18, it would be better for a man who was an intended abuser to have a millstone, that's a heavy stone that was used for grinding, to be placed around his neck, and then he'd be drowned in the deepest sea before he should offend one of these little ones. Strong words. One of our church men who has confided in me shared such a harrowing experience of abuse from his father that my heart was broken for him. I asked if I could share just a little bit of what he has gone through, he agreed, and as you listen, realize that this is only one of the many stories that could be told by people who weekly walk among us. Here's a part of his story. One night, his dad demanded that he wash a huge pile of dirty dishes. This man in our church was so young at the time, he needed to stand on a chair to reach the sink, and had no idea how to wash dishes. Seeing that his son was not completing the task fast enough, the dad hit him a few times. He told him he was going to come back in a half an hour to check to see if the dishes were done. And then he told him, if the dishes aren't done, I'm going to kill you. On another occasion at that same dishwasher, for no apparent reason, his dad punched him in the mouth, knocking out both of his front teeth. When he saw what he had done, he blamed his son for not having stronger teeth. This little guy was, was so dismayed, he found one of his teeth in the back of the dishwasher, and he fears that he swaddled the other one. Over the course of time, this boy was purposely burned with a steam gun, He was burned with a Ben Franklin stove. He was beaten for getting sick. In fact, his father beat him all the way to the hospital for getting sick and inconveniencing him. He was threatened and beaten so many times for merely walking around the house normally, normally, that this now grown man says to this day he walks on the balls of his feet. That breaks me up. So many of you have been through so much pain. May God help you. And we as a church want to come alongside hug on you and love you and encourage you and help you. Finally, number five, oppressive people are blind to their own faults. In Saul's case, he was not aware that the Spirit of God had left him, though he was very aware that the Spirit of God was with David. And weirdly, that made Saul scared of David. I am convinced that godly behavior by a spouse often incenses the angry man who is trying to justify himself. Abusers will not see their own spiritual emptiness as the root of the problem. When confronted, they blame shift to the wife or to the husband or the kids, as the case may be. Now, let me slow down and apply this to our church and to this audience here during this 8 a.m. service. While the statistics may vary, obviously, from fellowship to fellowship, we must not blindly ignore the averages. Our church averages approximately 400 people for each of our three morning services. Justin and Lindsay Holcomb highlight the pervasiveness of abuse with this illustration in their book entitled, Is It My Fault? Here is their quote. I'll put it on the screen for you. In a church, or a church service, of 400 people with 160 adult women and 20 teenage girls, 20 women are currently experiencing physical abuse. Now let me stop for a moment. I want you to look around and I want you to realize that in this room right now, there are 20 women who are currently being physically abused. 20 women right now in this room. If you factor in emotional or verbal abuse, 80 women listening to me right now are currently suffering. And 60 men here today would have assaulted their partner at least one time or another. Some of you are in disbelief. Wives tend to blame themselves. Surely I did something to deserve this. And by the way, I'm not ignorant of the fact that women do beat their husbands. You say, really? Yeah, really, I've counseled that. Women beating their husbands. is also a horrific sin. But to the women here today who have the nagging wonderment, "Eh, am I being abused? I want you to honestly answer these questions as you listen to them through the ears of your husband. Guys, how would you answer these questions? Here we go. Does your wife have the freedom to give her input in decisions at home? Or are you completely autocratic? What happens when she says no to your requests? Does your wife ever feel fearful around you? Have you ever threatened or physically hurt your wife in your marriage relationship? Have you ever forced your wife to perform an act against her will? Do you blame your wife for things that go wrong? If so, how? Do you monitor your wife's interactions with friends and family? Does jealousy run through your veins? Does your wife have a say in how your economic resources are used? Does she even know how much is coming in, how much is going out, and how the monies are being used? If you were to pass on, would she even know what to do financially? One more question. What do your arguments sound like or look like? For example, when you are quarreling, where do you stand if your wife is not hearing you or if she needs to leave to cool off? Okay, likely there's some conviction going on in the room right now. And that's good if we let the Lord work on us. And just for a case of full disclosure, I'm under conviction as I honestly answer some of these questions myself. In Matthew 7, Jesus urges us to look at the fruit of our hearts to see if we're planted in personal pride, or if we're planted in the good soil of Christ. Chris Moles uses two illustrations to help us understand this. Here is the first. Here is a heart full of pride, of selfism, of egoism. Pride drives two things you see there. Power and control. Utilizing money or threats. Ridicule, force, and fear trying to control through the kids or acts of privilege. It flows out of an evil heart. Please, honestly answer the question, is yours a heart full of pride? In contradistinction, we find a second illustration. This is a heart filled with the mind of Christ, Christ Christ-likeness, conformity to Christ. This, of course, is synonymous with the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and self-control. See some of those evidenced here in the good fruit at the top of the tree, faithfulness and forgiveness and compassion and grace and slow to anger and love. You know, I can tell by watching your life at home whether or not you're a Christian. You can can fake us in this context. You, You can't fake it at home. So what are you like to live with? Do you reflect the fruit of the Spirit? Or are you an unbeliever in disguise? By their fruit, you will know them. If we're going to help the men who are abusers, we have to deal with their heart because repentance always starts with a change of heart. One of our members here at Saterville who deals with battered women has given me this helpful outline for what to do when abuse is brought to our attention. You may want to take notes. What to do, first of all. Oppose hyper-headship, hyper-headship. Teach Christ-like servant leadership and biblical submission. Guys, these words ought not to ever flow from your lips. Hey, woman, the Bible says you have to submit. Now get with it. That's not godly. You don't demand submission. You're such a servant that loves your wife. She naturally wants to respond to you. Number two, value women and oppose oppression. Number three, have honest and thoughtful conversations about abuse and divorce and how the church should or will respond. I think we have to be less afraid of the optics. Oh, what will the community think if they hear about? Away with such a notion. We've gotta be above board, full of integrity, no matter who the person is or what the situation. And quite frankly, I think we need to take a hard look even at the realm of divorce when it comes to abuse. Maybe where we once stood, is that really biblical? What does the Bible actually say? And then number four, declare publicly, loudly, and often that abuse is sin in all of its forms, which invites disclosure of what those sins look like. I mean, why did it take Willow Creek Church so many years to call out Bill Hybels? Because they believed Bill instead of the women. Why did it take Harvest Bible Fellowship so many years to take out James McDonald because of intimidation, because of strength of personality, because of fear that somehow this would wreck the testimony of Christ. You don't think it has now? We've got to be brave. There's no respecter of persons. So we move on to be ready to help the victim. Be ready to help the victim. How? Prioritize safety. The goal is not always, no matter what, to keep the couple together. No, we've got to protect the woman. Number two, listen compassionately. Number three, avoid quick fixes. Don't say, "Yeah, just read a verse and pray a little bit more, and i will be okay." Enough already. Number four, increase understanding. Abuse is not primarily a marital problem. It's a sin issue. Number five, provide for immediate needs, shelter, food, financial assistance. Yes, we may need to secretly hide a spouse to protect them. And number six, provide accountability for the abuser. He needs counseling on his own, apart from his wife. We love everyone in our church, but that doesn't mean we close our eyes to what's happening behind closed doors we honestly must lance the wound, cut out the infection, and then we must apply a grace antibiotic and try to close the wound through careful, honest, and biblical restoration. Brothers, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual restore such in one And do it in a spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. That word restore means to mend a broken bone. We need to come alongside and help these people biblically with counsel from the word of God. A word of hope to both the abuser and the abused. The gospel is always the healer in the abuses of life. My abusing friend, if you'll come clean, if you'll open up, if you'll confess openly, homo legao, confess, say the same thing. If you'll repent, if you'll change your mind, if you'll turn to Jesus Christ and believe that he went to the cross to take the rap for your awful sin, And to prove that it was satisfactory to the Father, he rose again. If you'll believe that and invite him into your life, you'll be born again and changed from the inside out. That's the hope of the gospel. No matter what you've done, it can be forgiven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And to those of you who've been abused, I want to say to you that if the abuser comes and repents and asks forgiveness, you you can forgive Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. You you can forgive because you've been forgiven. If Jesus has forgiven you, you can forgive. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, because of Christ, has forgiven you. You can choose to forgive. And if there's proper biblical counseling, at least in many cases, there can be restoration but we must come clean. Abuser, you must confess to God and you must confess to your mate or the person who have be abused because the Bible says, whoso tries to cover their sin will not prosper, but whoso confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. Last time I preached on Father's Day, I told you that my wife and I were going to Germany to minister in the church my son-in-law and daughter serve in as church planters. Sankt Wendel, Germany, and we did. Had a wonderful time preaching and teaching and encouraging, spending time with with the family. Uh, my son-in-law and daughter, Rich and Julia, they have a fun little tradition. You you have to know that in in Germany, there's a church, a cathedral in every town that rings its bells regularly, and a, they they ring the bells. You know when there's a funeral, when there's a wedding, uh, special events. Uh, They they ring the bell every hour on the hour and sometimes in between. (laughs) A lot of bell ringing. Rich and Julie have a fun little tradition with their their little family, seven, uh, four, and two. Uh, They draw this from the tales of Robin Hood. (laughs) Uh, When it tolls six o'clock in the afternoon, when they remember, they all say in joyful union, as a family, it's six o'clock and all is well. <laughs> Little Lucy, the two-year-old, she can barely talk, but she can squeak out a few words. She only gives two words, and she'll yell them at the <laughs> top of her voice, oh, well. <laughs> it's been a pretty heavy message, and you may be wondering if you've been involved in abuse, you, Will we ever be able to say again at six o'clock and all is well? Or will the bells only toll the death knell for us? Well, I want you to know that if you'll turn your life over to Jesus Christ and submit to him, you will be able to say again "It's six o'clock and all is well. The bells will toll joyfulness in your spirit if you turn to Jesus, because whoso covers his sin will not prosper, but whoso confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. Lord, I beg that you will help us to be honest today, very sensitive subject, very delicate. I pray that your spirit will now bring conviction and repentance and that Those who are offenders will right now, in this moment, own up and confess and go home and confess and seek counsel and help to overcome, to give you glory and help these poor, abused people. To find you, that friend that sticketh closer than a brother, would you heal their wounds and help them and encourage them, I pray, with the joy of the Lord as they choose to forgive. Thank you for the promises that the bells can ring joyfully again when we embrace the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us?